Packers Daily with Jason Martinez. All right, here it is, Monday, July 12th edition of Flyers Daily with Jason Martinez. We are in the offseason. The countdown is on. Chuck Fletcher going to speak tomorrow, so we'll have some commentary on that on Wednesday's episode. But in this episode, before the ram jam of this crazy offseason is going to pick up, as we inch our way there, I thought we'd do a little something different in this episode. So I was able to tape a conversation with Flyers radio play-by-play man Tim Saunders. Going to talk about his road to the NHL. We talk about the players' roads to the NHL and executives and how, you know, the, the greatest hockey players in the world got to the greatest league. Well, it's the same thing for broadcasters. So here's the story of how Tim Saunders got to the NHL. It is the NHL offseason, and it is Flyers Daily. And joining us on this episode, Flyers play-by-play man for how many years now, Tim? Uh, 24. This will be 24, I think. Ooh, you're coming up on a big one then. Uh, 25 is a big one. Is, is, you, you get a watch or something? What do you think you get? Seiko. A Seiko. <laughs> Thanks for being our intermission guest. You I get did. a gift certificate. To... Well, it's better than a pair of Florsheim shoes, which is what you used to get for doing intermission interviews at one point. I remember that. <laughs> it is Tim Saunders joining us on Flyers Daily. First of all, how's the summer going? Uh, it's been uh, it's been good. It's been a- uh, active. I've had a weird year. You have. Um, and I haven't really talked a whole lot about it because who cares? And a lot of people have had it worse, but the pandemic year has been uh, extra challenging because uh, a year ago, June, and the storm that went through the area and uh, killed parts of Jersey, especially Haddonfield, uh, it was June 3rd, we had two huge trees drop right down the middle of my house. And, and left you out of the house for until just recently. 13 months. Yeah, we just wow. got back in. So it's been a combination of hotels and apartments with my wife and a puppy, which is <laughs> a lot of fun, uh, especially in a hotel. But uh, that's over, and uh, I know a lot of people have had it worse, so we're really fortunate. So after that year, is your wife moving back into the house with you? <laughs> uh, we're negotiating. <laughs> Okay, like a lot of stuff this time of year. There's a lot of negotiation. Her people are talking with my people. (laughs) Okay. Is it silly season? You know, the D word was only used about three times in the past 13 months, which I think is, I mean, we're doing real well considering what we've had to deal with. Wow, I would have taken the over. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Uh, on this episode, I want to talk about, because the one thing I like about off-seasons in this period of time is we get to have different types of conversation you know during the season we're into the season mode game in previewing breaking down analyzing this went right this went wrong blah 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 uh, but this time of year we can have real like real conversations and I, I thought it'd be really enlightening for the audience to kind of hear about your career you've been with the flyers now 24 years but before that you've had a whole nother career in broadcasting not doing play-by-play but then you've also worked your way up the ranks of play-by-play because when you get to the nhl that's the pinnacle so I kind of wanted to go through that with you. Um, let's kind of start where it started. When did you know that you wanted to be a broadcaster? Well, um, like a lot of kids growing up, um, huge sports fan. Um, I grew up in Detroit, which uh, allowed me to witness firsthand, you know, major league teams, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey. Uh, was especially drawn to baseball and hockey. Spent a lot of time at Olympia Stadium in Detroit as a kid uh, watching the Wings. And the Wings were, at the time when I was growing up, the most important thing in my life. Yeah. Uh, um, 
a lot of games at Tiger Stadium in Detroit, so on and so forth. So um, I, I probably played more baseball than I did hockey, but I wanted to be a pro athlete, as most kids, or a lot of kids do. Um, and it became apparent when everybody else started to grow and I didn't, that it <laughs> wasn't going to happen. That I had the heart, but I didn't have the ability or skill. So it was uh, kind of a, how do you figure out a way to stay in sports in another capacity? Um, I used to write, uh, like took journalism classes. And uh, one day uh, I was a senior in high school and the instructor in the journalism class got up in front of the room and said, we've been contacted by WXYZ in Detroit. And they were doing the first uh, sports talk show uh, in that market. And they were looking for interns, and I jumped at that. So after class, a few days a week, I'd uh, drive to the studios and, uh, and do uh, interned on that sports talk show. Uh, uh, George Blaha was one of the uh, um, announcers on that show. He's been a longtime voice of the Detroit Pistons. And I, over the years, have had, growing up, had a chance to work with a lot of people that I grew up listening to. So that was kind of yeah. neat. Yeah, that's one of the cool things is, you know, you listen to these voices and they're the voices of your childhood in a lot of ways. They've narrated so many important moments in your life that you remember. They're like signature moments and then you end up meeting them as people. And sometimes they disappoint, but most often they don't. Um, Let me ask you about, you know, getting out of college. What was the first the first gig you took? First paid radio broadcasting or media job? Well, I was, uh, again, pretty fortunate because after doing that uh, in high school, I, pr- I ha- thought I had a, a, a direction I wanted to go in, and I was exposed to radio and, and loved that. So that was kind of the, the next. Hooks in you right away. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was fortunate to work for a couple of other uh, major stations in Detroit. Um, first is an intern. Um, or an engineer, rather, and kind of learned that end of the business, and that was kind of a foot in the door to do other things and eventually some on-air stuff. Worked in Sports Phone in Detroit. I don't know if you're old enough to remember what Sports Phone Mm -hmm. was. Um, And by the time I got through my second year of college, I was taking classes with upperclassmen uh, working on that radio station, but I had already had way more experienced than these guys graduating and they were all talking about going to get jobs and I didn't think that they were nearly as prepared and I, and I just got flat uh, impatient and dropped out and went to work. Uh, got a, a sports casting job uh, in Grand Rapids, the biggest station and the biggest city outside of Detroit in Michigan and ended up staying there for 10 years doing morning and afternoon drive sports. Wow, that's funny because I, th- I went through the same thing at college. I, I was getting, I was already doing commercial radio, and right. I was being taught by teachers that never did commercial radio. And I'm going, this is not really how it's working where I'm at <laughs> right now. They well, were instructing in bus- radio, but not working in it. And in our business, it's more about experience than yes. it is book learning, right? Because you kind of learn how to do by doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it was. A, I was in such a hurry at that age. If I could talk to my myself at that age now i would tell slow myself down. to slow down yeah. and and not be in such a rush yeah but you get eager and and you want to do it and you're hungry for it you, you were you mentioned that you were an engineer first and i can see that now that you tell me that that you have the background of engineering which is the technical aspect of broadcasting the electronics and all of those things because when you set up for a game it's like norad 
<laughs> you could launch missiles from 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 your and you engineer that a lot of that element of it yourself just to have all of those screens around you all the capabilities at your fingertips and that's where that engineering comes from that's, isn't it that's pretty funny and actually most play-by-play guys in the minors uh, you are your own engineer mm-hmm. and i was so everything. ahead of the game knowing how to set up equipment and and uh, figure out if this didn't work, how can I make something else work? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, going back to alligator clips in phones that you would take apart back in the mm-hmm. day when you had to. So, um, yeah, it's probably served me well. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that that's part of your background and the way you, you set up your own broadcast, even to this day where, you know, you have an engineer on site and you have those things, but you still have the elements that you need there as well. You see, see that visual and nobody else does, of course, right? Yeah, well, we'll have to take a picture of that at some point. <laughs> I'll tweet it out because it is impressive. I mean, there's a lot of screens there. When I say it looks like NORAD, I'm not kidding. Um, one of the things, you did talk radio in Morning and Afternoon Drive. You said, uh, was there any reason that you wanted to get out of that? And how did you kind of end up pivoting from that into, into play-by-play? Well, uh, the goal was always to work my way back to a major market, and ideally Detroit, but knew pretty early that in our business, you can't tie yourself to one market. Number one, you don't start in a major market, to be nope. very honest. And, and two, you need to be willing to go anywhere, and that's kind of part of the, the fun of the business. Um, so the goal was sort of to work back to a major market, and after about eight, nine, ten years, by now I've met my wife, I've got two kids and a mortgage, and it's like, okay, um, I like the gig, I've been here a while, but what is it I really want to do? What would be my ideal dream job in the business? And I, I took some months to really consider that. I wish I'd done it earlier, but okay, whatever. Um, I think I was 30 by the time I figured out that what I really would love to do is be a hockey play-by-play guy. Really? So then it was a matter of, all right, how do you get from point A to point B? And started to talk to a lot of guys in the business and realized that if you're going to be a play-by-play guy, you got to go do it. And I wasn't going to do it there because there was no uh, professional team there. so I ended up uh, doing a year in the Colonial League while working in Grand Rapids. Uh, Muskegon was about a 45-minute drive away, right on the western shore of Michigan. And they had a team in the Colonial League. And I did uh, some broadcasting there for a year and, and commuted and did the two jobs. And then that convinced me I need to start sending tapes to minor league teams around the country and find a gig. Well, the interesting thing about that, you mentioned you know, you're 30 at this point. You're, you're married with two kids. I imagine there's a pay cut there Big. because some of those leagues are not paying real good money. But I'm at, that, that's a hard decision to make when you have you know, mouths to feed. Well, a, a, as a married guy, you can um, relate to this. Um, I, I had seen so many guys that I had worked with growing up who had kind of gotten uh, tied to a market because they were – married and living in you know roots living in either their hometown or her hometown and they had no intention or she might not have any intention of leaving so shortly after i met my wife of course i kept telling her year after year we need to be willing to move because we may not be here forever and god love her she went along with that i remember the first interview i had for a hockey job which would mean moving away 
was in Wheeling, West Virginia. Hmm. We're in Grand Rapids at the time, and uh, where she grew up, and our parents were. And I decided, uh, you know, this is a family decision. This is more than just me deciding. So I had her come on that trip. We rented a car. We drove to Wheeling, West Virginia, and because uh, you know I wanted her involved in the decision. It, it had to be the two of us decide. Yeah. We drove into Wheeling, West Virginia, and drove around the town and. She looked at me kind of like, you gotta be kidding. And she would have done it, uh, but it was almost deliverance. Uh, yep. We could hear the banjo. <laughs> um, she would have done it. I, I interviewed for the job. I did not get it. And a few months later, a couple, actually a few weeks later, uh, had an opportunity in Tulsa in the Central League, and we ended up moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow, that's another world away, though, too. I mean, it, w- one is deliverance. The other one is j- the deep south. You know what? I had I've been visions. to Tulsa. Have you? Well, <laughs> yeah. I had never been. So Oklahoma, I had visions of dirt and tumbleweeds. And yeah. Tulsa is nothing like that. Tulsa was the no. greenest city I've ever seen. It, yeah. was, it was a wonderful uh, spot for us to land for two years. Um, you were right when you said uh, minor league teams don't pay a broadcaster enough to live on. He's got to do other things. So I was yeah. the PR director. Uh, did sales, kind of evolved into an assistant GM type role, and the owner uh, or the general manager of, of the team uh, took a liking to me and uh, and made it doable uh, financially and otherwise, and it was a great two years. So, And you get to cut your teeth a ton in those two years. Yeah. Um, the hardest part of that was... Um, June came and it was time for me to get down there and start working. And we had a house to sell. So the idea was we were going to leave her back in Michigan with the two little kids, and they were little at the time. And I uh, loaded up a truck, and, you know, when you sell the house, we'll, we'll get the family back together. And that was tough because one of the things I have embedded in my memory forever is getting in that truck and pulling away and having them in my rearview mirror. My kids mm. were probably four and six maybe mm, that's difficult and not knowing when i was going to see him and whether this was a huge mistake or not yeah. uh, that was kind of scary exciting and scary at the same time i guess yeah but you are you're incurring risk you're going geez i mean when's it going to be well it's you a know, good thing i didn't know because it was six months without seeing wow. my kids yeah, you and, wouldn't have gotten in that truck if you'd known it was and six i wouldn't months. have done it i wouldn't have no, done it. you never would have gotten the truck and that's a long drive to think about all those things down and you Tulsa. know what so many people in our business uh, especially players but coaches they all have similar stories so that's yep. i'm not unique in that way um it's a matter of how how bad do you want to do it yeah and that's a, that's a way the industry almost has a way of weeding out the people that don't really want to do it good point yeah it's, it's a way of doing that so you spend the two years there uh, where's the next stop after tulsa so um, the, the GM knew I had aspirations and hired me knowing that I didn't want to be there long term. But I mm-hmm. figured out that the best way to turn him into an ally was to find out what his priorities were and make them my priorities. And uh, again, it turned out to be a great two years. And, and then he went to bat for me when it came to applying <clears throat> for, uh, with other teams, you know, always looking for that next step up in a league. Um, opportunity came up in Cleveland in the IHL, uh, which was similar uh, to the AHL, kind of a triple mm-hmm. A, to use a baseball vernacular. And, uh, you know, every step of the way, um, my biggest ally 
in getting me the next job was the guy I was currently working for. The uh, guy that hired you. Sure. So if if you can uh, build that trust and earn that uh, that kind of support and trust, um, I think that's the way to do it. it. Again, just like everything else, it's a people thing. It's relationships. That's how you move is the relationships. Yeah, but it doesn't happen automatically. So don't no, you got to work at it. You got to you got to earn that. Yeah, exactly. Um so you, you So we from, went we went to uh, Cleveland for 2 years. After 2 years in Tulsa, we went to Cleveland, which was closer to home, but um Cleveland growing up in Detroit uh, always heard uh, as the mistake on the lake and <laughs> Cleveland was a great town. We loved Cleveland. Yeah. Um so you spent the years in Tulsa, then you go to Cleveland. How much difference the hockey audience in Tulsa to Oakland or to Cleveland? Um, Cleveland had a long history of hockey. In fact, so did Tulsa. Tulsa, mm-hmm. the old Central Hockey League, used to be the feeder system, yep. the top minor league to the NHL. And the uh, Tulsa Oilers were the top farm team for the Toronto Maple Leafs for years. Uh, Boston had Oklahoma City um, and a bunch of others. Um, so Hockey wasn't a new thing down there. But you're not educating. Uh, so no, not not to that extent. Not um, not if you were going into a new market. Like when we were in the Central Hockey League, uh, they expanded after my first year to San Antonio, and they incorporated the San Antonio Iguanas. And they were uh, educating a hockey audience. And I remember being in that building doing a game, and some guy scored a hat trick, and a few people threw hats on the ice, and the security people and the ushers threw the guy out for throwing <laughs> stuff on the ice. <laughs> so everybody was kind of being educated. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Man, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so you, you go to Cleveland. You're there three years, you said? Two. So two in Tulsa. One in Muskegon, two in Tulsa, two in Cleveland. Um, and again, the guys that I were, was working for in Cleveland knew what my aspirations were. Uh, the flyer job became available. I applied, and uh, they did their best to help me get it, and uh, I was fortunate enough to get it. The odd thing is that the guy I replaced in Cleveland was Tom McGinnis. No way. Who left Cleveland to do the Sixers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I knew that Tom w- had done hockey prior to coming here. I didn't realize that you took his spot. He comes here. He goes to the Sixers to become the play-by-play radio voice, which he still is, and yep. a great guy. And and then eventually you end up coming to Philly as well. Was there a connection there that helped Tom land in Philly and also help you? No, not especially. Um, and and he was helpful, and uh, I think he even made a call when he heard there was an opening, but I had already applied. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I took the job in Cleveland, it entailed me spending a week with Tom uh, before he left, kind of show me the ropes because it was a pretty big uh, that we did a 20 game TV package on uh, mm-hmm. Fox uh, Ohio. So you were uh, the radio play by play guy, but you were also doing TV for 20 games and you had to set all that up technically, uh, so on and so forth. So it was involved and I spent a week with Tom and uh, and then ended up coming to Philly a few couple of years later. Nah, that's pretty crazy. Um- so you get out of Cleveland, and who, who kind of did you interview with here, with the Flyers? Did you, that process, what was that process like, <laughs> you know, coming from that league and having this opportunity? I mean, you're coming to the NHL. You're trying to get – it's the pinnacle of all leagues uh, yeah. when it comes to pro hockey. You want to be a professional sports announcer. You determined that very young. What's that process like 
to, to interview for the job and, and eventually land it? Well, I said my current employers were supportive of my aspirations, so much so that uh, they sent me, uh, allowed me to go and paid for it, to go to the NHL broadcast meetings, which happened to be in Chicago that year, just to try to unearth something. You know, you go to meetings where all the GMs are, and you hope, uh, you know, you uh, can sniff out an opportunity somewhere. Um, I happened to be at the meeting in Chicago when I got the call back in Philadelphia, uh, the tape that I had sent and the application that I had made to Ron Ryan, who was running the Flyers uh, business side, um, had called and said, uh, we want you in Philly in uh, two days. So I had to get back to Philly from Chicago and uh, went out and bought a suit, (laughs) make sure I was dressed properly, and I got on a plane and went to Philly the next day. And I interviewed mostly with Ron Ryan, but the interview process involved uh, several people. Tom Bigby at WIP, which is uh, the flagship station at the time. Yeah. Um, what was that? What was that part like? Uh, that was interesting. I actually got along quite well with Tom. Um, he could be hard, but I think he Tom would. Uh, it, it, most people have never heard of Tom or don't know of Tom, but Tom would like to push people and yes. to see if they would push back. And if you didn't push back a little bit, he'd he'd eat you alive no time for you yep so so i i passed that test i guess but they also put me that day in the interview they took me out to uh the coliseum in Voorhees to meet bob clark and i remember asking uh i mean this was uh he didn't have time for this and he didn't have a whole lot of input on who they hired he couldn't care less at that point yep. But I said, uh, so Bob, is there anything in particular that you care about as far as the candidate for this position? And he thought about that and he said, well, some of the other guys around here haven't been particularly dressed. I don't think we have a problem with you, so uh, I'm fine. <laughs> so buying the suit the day before, I guess, worked. Uh, <laughs> Who was he referring to, by the no, way? I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. Gene, as much as Gene was a beloved figure, yeah, uh, Gene. Uh, they said you could tell what Gene had for dinner and lunch by what was on his tie. <laughs> he wore it, <laughs> <laughs> but that was the extent of Bob Clark's uh, input. And then I spent part of the day with Coatsy because Coatsy had just gone through uh, two different guys, his partners, um, in two years. He had uh, um, John Weideman for a, a year and uh, uh, Carol. Um, I can't remember uh, Carol's first name. Um, he's in Anaheim at the time, right now. Um, anyway, um, so I'm also thinking that as much as I'm anxious to get an NHL job, this, this guy job's chewing just, guys up. Well, I, I wouldn't say it that way. I, I didn't assume it was it was Coatsy, but he was he would be my partner. And mm-hmm. there had been two guys in two years here. So am I walking into a difficult situation? Couldn't have been better because Coatsy and I got along famously from the get go. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. Um, so, so you get the gig. They they make you the offer. You accept it. What's the conversation like with your wife to tell her that you're going to the Philadelphia and to the NHL? I was so thankful that Ron offered me the job before I got on the plane to leave to Philly. Oh, did he? Nice. Yeah. Instead of sending me on the plane and going home and, and hoping and praying for that call. So I knew um, going home. So the first call was to the GM in Tulsa who was so instrumental in helping me get from point A to point B. Um, and then I called my wife, and she was scared and excited at the same time. 
Yeah, but but it's a huge jump, right? And oh. now you're you're in the NHL. You're you're not setting up your own all this stuff, you know. You're in the big leagues now. <laughs> is, is that the feeling you get when you're coming into it? Like, wow, I'm, yeah, I'm a little calling bit. NHL games here. Like, if I'm being honest, like this is kind of a big deal, <laughs> you know. Um, a, a, a little bit. I was really fortunate, and I recognized that because mm-hmm. guys work for decades in yeah. minor leagues, hoping that opportunity comes. And sometimes, I mean, you never know if it is going to come or not. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was an absolute thrill um, that we got the opportunity. And uh, I had no idea, having been in so many cities for, so, uh, for bits of periods of time, how long we'd be in Philly. But um, so far, it's worked out. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So Coatsy's your first partner. What was the first go-around with Coatsy like? Um, as I said, we got along great. I, I had been in broadcasting for quite a while by then, yep. since my senior year in high school, um, and, and quickly uh, developed the, the knowledge and the ability to ad-lib. In our business, if you can't ad-lib, and you know this better than anybody, mm-hmm. and there are some guys who could be great talk show hosts or whatever role they are in broadcasting, but if you can't ad-lib, forget about it. Yeah, You're dead. dead. Um, so I had that ability, and Coatsy had a similar sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a we had a blast. Was that chemistry there right away? The kind of the way it is now, uh, you know, where you guys can play off each other incredibly well while calling a game. It's it's hard to do because brevity is a big part of that to not get carried away, but have those moments of levity and fun, um, either. When, when things are bad, you need those, or when things are great. W- was that there immediately? Um, it, it was, but he was guarded because, you know, he had just been through two partners in two years, and yeah. I could be the third in three and then gone the following year. So he was, I think, a little guarded, but he had a sense of humor. and if That he, he can't turn off. No. And if you just take him. the sense of humor wrong and don't come back with the same sense of humor – then it's not going to work. I remember um, shortly after Christmas, our, my first year, I had always promised the kids that we'd get them a dog. And finally at Christmas, uh, we're in a place we hope to be able to stay, so I went out and got a puppy and gave it to the kids on Christmas Eve night and let them name the dog. And they decided to name the dog Flyer, against my best uh, advice kind of a silly name but whatever okay so the dog's name fly well Coatsy finds out about that oh boy and he uh he brings it up and uh, this was just the year before the columbus blue jackets came into the league as an expansion club and he said is it true that you you got a dog for the kids and they named him flyer i said yeah and he said that's great what are you going to call him next year <laughs> 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 so if, if if you couldn't roll with that, you weren't going to survive with Coatsy. He and I had never any problems. Yeah. So you have Coatsy for a period of time. Your second partner is Prime Prop, right? Yeah, they had decided that uh, Coatsy's um, popularity was such that they wanted to maximize that a little bit and move him to TV between the benches. That when was when teams first started using three-man uh, broadcast teams. Yeah. And uh, obviously a huge success, but they had to find somebody to jump in the seat next to me. And uh, Brian Propp had expressed an interest and uh, obviously one of the great flyers of all time. Um, 
it was a little challenging for Proper because he was, as a player, anybody that knows Brian, was a relatively quiet figure. Um, yeah. He wasn't uh, gregarious. He wasn't outgoing. And it wasn't a natural fit, but he did really well and, uh, and in time adjusted pretty well to it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's weird because you go from a guy like Coetzee who is, I mean, when he's in the room, it's, whoa, you know, it's, you know, noisemakers and uh, kazoos, <laughs> you know, and Proper's a very reserved kind of guy. But working with different people and, and all those years of broadcasting at all those different locations and doing talk shows and everything, you, you got to, you have to, as the lead, in essence, the play-by-play man, you got to kind of be able to be the guy to set anybody up. Bingo. You have to be have any longevity at all. You have to be able to work with different personalities yep. and make it work. And yeah. fortunately, I had been in broadcasting by then long enough to have uh, kind of discovered that. Let me ask you about the Bundy years, because I, I guess it was about two thousand eight nine ish when Chris Terrian uh, hung up the skates. Uh, he was doing a little bit of uh, like post game live and that kind of stuff. And there's a, a change in the radio booth. And they go from Brian Prop to Chris Terrian. And Bundy as a player was um, he, a gregarious personality, but scruffy with the media <laughs> is maybe a good way to put it. I, I often told people that in my first 10 years on the job, 15 years on the job, only one player, when I approached him for an interview, told me to go take a hike. And it happened to be uh, Chris Terrian one time. I just caught him at a bad moment. Uh, and he and he didn't tell me to take a hike. He told me to do something else that was physically impossible. Um, <laughs> and then he turns out to be my partner years later. But he and I, uh, Bundy and I, again, it came down to ability to ad lib and sense of humor. Bundy always had both of those in spades, yeah. and uh, it was a lot of fun, actually. Is it fair to say that Bundy also had a bit of, um, like, almost like a childhood enthusiasm too with it? Yeah, like I felt I, that it, it, when he initially came into, like he was he was having fun. Yeah, the, the thing that uh, a former player will struggle with when they first make that transition is you've been a player, and now to come over and be part of the media and have to ask other players questions and interviews that's kind of an uncomfortable transition. Especially guys you played with. Exactly, and and I think he struggled with that maybe for the part of the first year, but he got over it pretty quickly, and. You know, Bundy's Bundy. He he can talk to anybody and uh, and BS his way through almost anything, and mm. that's kind of what you need to be able to do. Let, let me ask you about a particular moment with Bundy, and it's there one so that many, yeah, the, on <laughs> and off the air. Um, <laughs> but the one with Crosby, and the situation where Crosby hits the glove of Erica Desjardin, yeah, and he just goes on a tirade and it is classic he's bad for the game and blah 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 as that whole thing's unfolding kind of what's going through your mind as, as his partner that audio is around somewhere oh it's on youtube i've watched it recently um it, it, i i was um right there with him and he and i were uh, in the know, moment man in the moment and you have to be right yep um we're not network announcers. I never professed to want to yeah. be a network announcer. I grew up uh, listening to guys that were obviously the voice of the team that I grew up listening to that I, I loved and had a passion for. And I wanted that reflected in the guy that I was listening to. Yeah. So that's always been the objective. And do we get carried away and are we homers? Damn right we are, and I'm fine yeah. with that. 
so I, I was right there with them step by step. Um, and those are some of the fun moments. Our sense of humor and our passion sometimes can get the better of us. Yeah, it was great, though. Somebody needs to go up and punch him right in the beak. <laughs> I remember he was trying to come up with the name. I, I, I don't think he could think of Pacifier. And back in the day, I think they used to call them nooks. Yeah. And he was trying to think of the word, and I finally said, in my day, they were just called nipples. <laughs> kind of kind of lost it. We, we uh, towed the line a few times. <laughs> um, th- all the moments for the Flyers, uh, and I want to get back to the arc here in a second, but in, in those early years from, you know, when you started with Coetzee, before the cup appearance in 2010, what's what's the moment that sticks out to you? Is it that the five overtime game? Probably, yeah. Um, just because that's a singular moment that um, so much went into, and we were exhausted. And, and how is your voice holding up at that point? Uh, it was uh, tea and honey, and just try to not. Do it. Brian Prop was my partner at the time, and Prop would at in intermissions. This was before we had great studio support that we have now mm-hmm. to do intermissions um brian would interview somebody in the press box a writer or a scout or whatever yeah and by the fifth or sixth uh, intermission he was running out of people to talk to um i remember teasing the uh, the next intermission before the fifth overtime brian prop will be back and talk to whoever the hell's left because <laughs> pretty much gone through everybody you're 2 a.m. at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was a memorable moment. And I remember during the game, you just, you're praying, don't blow the call. Don't yeah. blow the call. Just stay with it and don't blow it. And it wasn't a great call, but um, I didn't I didn't blow it at least. So. Yeah, that's one where, you, I mean, you're just so exhausted. It, be, being an announcer with the Flyers, you travel on the team plane. What's the plane like after that? Uh, the plane after right home. that game? Yeah. We weren't on that plane. Because in the playoffs, they take so many more players oh. and doctors and staff uh, that typically in the playoffs, the broadcasters will uh, go commercial for the only time. Oh, so you so I remember that. going back to the hotel, which was across the street from the Igloo in Pittsburgh. And it was, you're right, uh, 3 o'clock, a little after 3 before we got back to the hotel. And we had about 45 minutes to go up to the room and maybe shut your eyes but we were a little afraid to do that because you wouldn't get up and yeah. miss the shuttle to the airport early the next morning or early that morning so. wow yeah, uh, was, oh, were you a guy that didn't mind flying before um no i never mind flying i mean i imagine in all the flights that you've taken i don't know if you can log how many miles you've flown since being in the nhl because you're not on buses in the nhl for the most part now you are on a team in this northeast you know quadrant where the travel's a lot better than it can be for some teams like Dallas or out on the West Coast. Or Honestly, I think Philly is the best travel just because yeah. of where it's situated. Trains and buses are yeah. an option. Yeah, Washington's a train. Yeah. Buses to New Jersey, New York, or you know, unless you're connecting through. But um, I imagine some dicey moments on planes at sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Some rough mm-hmm. landings. Yep. Well, we had one flight in particular. We were going to Ottawa. And as we were driving to the airport here in Philly, you could see the damn storm clouds coming in from Wilmington, and they were dark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, takeoff patterns are set, and you have no choice. They have no idea what how bad it is. Uh, you you got to 
take off where you have to take off, and it put us right into the middle of this thing, just outside of the Philadelphia airport. And because of the traffic, he couldn't get us out of it. And uh, for about 15 minutes, that was pretty rough. Uh, a couple of times, the plane dropped what felt like thousands of feet, and computers were hitting the roof of the cabin. And yeah. and it's funny how you find out how guys react in moments like that, in mm-hmm. scary moments like when that. When the S hits the fan? Yeah. And uh, and I was the loudest guy on the plane, cursing and swearing and just no because I was so nervous. Can you imagine? Holy cow! Yeah, it was that was a little frightening. That was that might be one of the few bad flights we've had, honestly, in the last yeah. twenty four years. The other memorable one I always remember uh, uh, flying into San Antonio one time. And it was really foggy. And occasionally, back in the day, they'd let Coatsy go up to the cabin and sit with the pilots. <laughs> so Coatsy's up there one time, and we're coming into San, in San Jose, and it's a, a foggy night, and you couldn't see the runway, and the pilots were having trouble finding the damn runway, and twice they came in and pull up, broke through the clouds and realized they missed it and had to pull up, and we did that twice. Before Coatsy got on the intercom and said, guys, I've tried it twice. I'm going to let the pilots do it this time. <laughs> <laughs> What's the reaction of the players when they hear that? <laughs> the whole place busted out. <laughs> I could just hear them doing that. Oh, that's classic. <laughs> I've tried it twice. Uh, and you're going, is he serious? Because <laughs> we did pull up twice. <laughs> Coatsy, you never know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so l- let me take you back to 2010 because um, – as you mentioned, a couple of years before, that's when we kind of started the intermission things. And uh, once again, the Flyers radio network was way ahead of everybody else. Every team in the league now is doing uh, yep. intermission hosts. But we were the first ones to do it. We were the first ones to put somebody down by the locker room for those interviews. First of all, uh, I know you were always very in favor of it when we were talking about doing it because you're like, that means I don't have to do anything during intermission. I got 18 minutes <laughs> off. <laughs> Bingo. <laughs> Didn't take you long to figure that out, did it? <laughs> uh, but let's go back to 2010 because... Uh, I don't know that any of us saw this curveball coming. So we're going through that season. We we begin the year, and uh, there's a coaching change in December. And uh, move on to Peter LaViolette. And all of a sudden, the team didn't get off to a great start when he picks it up. But then the team really starts to hit a stride. And we know how they get into the playoffs with the shootout against the Rangers. And Boosh makes that save. Yep. Uh, when did you feel like something special could happen? Was it in Boston? Well, clearly, yeah. Yeah. Um, to be one of the very few teams that ever came back from that kind of deficit, um, that was incredible. Um, that was one of the more memorable, certainly, series. And going back to Boston, I, I don't think many of us held out much hope. And for that mm-hmm. comeback to start the way it did, and then uh, even in Game 7, I think they were down 3 nothing, and came back in that game, in Game 7. Um, it was one of the incredible moments that I've been fortunate enough to be here to help narrate. Yeah, that's that was one of those ones. It's like, wow. So we were off to Montreal, and we go to Montreal. It is the conference final. First two games are here in Philly. Flyers get the job done in both of those. There's a seventh seed, and they have the home ice advantage because – Montreal upsets Washington on their way uh, behind great goaltending from Yarrow Halak. And it's in the conference final. Go to Montreal. The moment in that series actually happens in game five. The shift by Mike Richards, shorthanded. Mm-hmm. What's that moment like? Uh, just it was electric. just awesome. <laughs> just electric. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, one of the more memorable um, shifts that I can remember calling, and uh, we knew the significance of it. Yeah, you know, honestly, after the Boston series, the Montreal series was almost, I don't want to say a letdown, uh, but it almost felt like a fait accompli that they were going to the finals after what totally they were coming back from Boston. So um, You sensed that with the, just being around the players, too, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. They did. knew it. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think the biggest memory, and somebody told me, um, having been in the business and knowing that you never know how many times you're going to get this far, somebody advised me that not for public consumption, but to keep a personal journal uh, during the finals. Mm. And I was so glad I did because uh, reading those entries. Uh, after the fact, years later, uh, it was kind of interesting. Um, what I Just most details. remember about going into that final round series with Chicago was how keenly aware everyone, players, coaches, broadcasters, how everybody was aware that uh, where they were, what the moment was, the significance of the moment, and everybody was uh, um, going to do their best to make the most of it. Wow. Yeah. I wish I would have done that. Damn. You should have told me that. <laughs> Some of the details are a little foggy. A good time in Chicago that one night. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not going to even ask you about the Kane goal, but I want to ask you about because I don't mind talking about the Kane goal. Did you realize it went in? I did. Um, and I didn't trust myself. And so, you know, especially the big goal, whether it, you win it or, or you don't win, um, again, it's kind of like the five-overtime game in Pittsburgh. Don't blow the call. Don't blow the call. Yeah. And then that was kind of an odd play, and I was pretty sure it was in. And I didn't feel real good about the call afterwards until I got home and heard all the other calls. Yeah. And everybody hedged more than I had. So for whatever reason, I thought it was in immediately, and then I kind of didn't go full bore until I was sure, but um, everybody did that. So, you know, it was what it was. Yeah, what a moment that was. Ugh. I can still take myself back to when finally got done the post-game show and everything and just sitting on the Flyers bench and watching the Blackhawks players and families out there with the cup. I sat there for about two hours. Mm-hmm. And I was going, man, what it, what it must mean to win that. Tr- it sucked the Flyers didn't win it, but just to of see course. that. With, I mean, the trophy's got its own aura, no doubt. Um, back in 2010, prior to that, uh, is our first outdoor game. And we're at a pretty darn cool place Yeah, in Boston at Fenway Park. I'd never been to Fenway before that. Me neither. I still haven't seen a baseball game there, but I saw a hockey game. Bundy was my partner, and yep. I remember the day before uh, they had a practice, and the setting just could not have been more perfect because a light snow was falling. Mm-hmm. We're at Fenway Park, and we're roaming Fenway, and we were doing stuff, uh, video stuff for the website, and he and I went and did our video thing sitting on top of the Green Monster. It was so cool. Yeah. I Put it this way. That place is so old that when you walk from the dugout to the clubhouse, Tim Saunders and I can put our fingers on the ceiling <laughs> as we're walking through it. That's how low the ceilings are. <laughs> I, gr- I grew up in Detroit at Tiger Stadium. Behind me I have two chairs, the wood chairs that came out of the original Tiger Stadium. Mm-hmm. Tiger Stadium opened the same day that Fenway Park opened. Wow. And Tiger Stadium has long since been replaced. Um, Fenway's still kicking. Wow, that's amazing. Um, challenging calling. Because at this point, 
that's the first one at Fenway. But you've called uh, a game at Fenway. You've called a game at Citizens Bank Park. You've the Fenway one, by the way, having done some other things before I got into hockey, you're covering Rose Bowls, so on and so forth. The Fenway game was the coolest sporting event I've ever been part of. Wow, really? Yep. Wow. It, it was kind of the earlier days, too, of the outdoor game. Right. And just that environment was it was just awesome. Yeah. Um, so you've called the game at Fenway. You've called the game at Citizens Bank Park. You've called a game at Lincoln Financial Field. You called one at Heinz Field. Is that all of them? I'm sorry? That's all the outdoor games, right? Uh, uh, Tahoe. Or Tahoe this year. Yeah, we'll take that out of the equation. <laughs> Which was um, uh, a challenge that the others were not. Yeah, that was a whole different ball of wax, and not to mention not a great game. Well, but I never called a game where I couldn't see anything. I faked it for the first half of the first period until the sun went down. Because I couldn't see it's just the glare. Yeah, uh, glare looking right into the sun where they had it situated uh, in Tahoe. I was thrilled to get through that first period without messing anything up. All right, take that one out of the equation and go with the other ones. The okay. Citizens Bank Park against the Rangers, uh, obviously Fenway against Boston, and then two against Pittsburgh. One in Pittsburgh at Heinz Field mm-hmm. and uh, one in, Phil- in Philadelphia Lincoln Financial against Pittsburgh. Best one of the four. It's got to be Boston, right? Well, uh, for everything and for being so new and unique, the Fenway thing, as I said, I thought was the coolest event that I've ever been part of. Um, The win at the link and the overtime uh, goal by Giroux and the comeback, that was a pretty cool moment. What otherwise was kind of a disappointing year, that was absolutely a highlight of the season. Um, So in terms of game, that might have been the best game. In the weirdest conditions. Yeah, yeah, off by far. Yeah. Because you were on the glass for that one at Fenway and Citizens Bank Park. You're in the booth. Right. And, and Fenway being in the booth is just looking straight down right on it because you're right behind home plate. Yeah. So it was a, a great vantage point. Uh, the others, the ones that are done in football stadiums, aren't don't tend to be great vantage points, and there are challenges in calling games like that. And we found that out at uh, Heinz Field uh, that you pretty much had to rely on a monitor and do it off a monitor, which was the case in Tahoe for a while because of where we were situated. Um, little did I know that that would prepare me for a pandemic year where we did a lot of games off monitors. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the thing is, too, is I remember that, that game in Pittsburgh the day before. It was about 75 degrees in February and that day. Yeah. It just got colder and colder. My computer froze as I'm down by the glass. At one point, they made me get off the glass and sit in a folding chair, which the rinks actually raised up. I could see a bunch of heads when they came by every once in a while, but that was it. But uh, that was my least favorite, for sure. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Last thing, um, you know, you you go back to Coetzee. Bundy moves to television. He goes down between the benches, and Coetzee comes back. Uh, Part two was Steve Coates. Picking up right where you left off? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, Coatsy's become a family. Um, we've been together, if not as partners, uh, as you know, part of the same group and team for so long. Um, he's like a big brother. Um, Crazy I love uncle. Him. I love him like family. Crazy, uh, I, I kid and say drunk uncle. He, he's, he's not a drunk, but um, we... We, He's not this early. We kid him about, you know, the consumption, and that's just kidding. That's the, yeah. uh, the 
aura that he's built um, and we kind of have fun with. But no, he's he, he's family. He's, uh, I love him to death, and uh, there's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Yeah, he, he's, he is singular in nature. There's definitely not two Steve Coates in the world. He's fun, and that's yeah. the one thing I can say about every single night. We go to the booth, and we laugh, and we yeah. have a good time. And that's what I want our broadcast to sound like. I, we're paid and selected by the Philadelphia Flyers. We have a passion for the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, I'm broadcasting to the 10-year-old me back in the day because mm-hmm. I was that kid. And that's the beauty of, of doing radio, I think, in sports is as a, as a sports fan, every sports fan, no matter how old you are, have that 10-year-old kid somewhere inside. That's the guy I want to broadcast to. Um, and mm-hmm. and it's fun to do, and Coatsy and I have a blast. Yeah, if you can't have fun doing this for a living, then you I, I don't know what oh, to tell you. You're in the wrong business. You're yeah. in the wrong business, and it is a lot of fun. Uh, this was awesome. Um, best of luck getting everything settled into the new house, or the old house, redone, I guess is the best way to put it. We're, we're, um, we're expecting to get a kitchen sometime in the next uh, few weeks. We're using a hot plate now? We're microwaving and uh, and ordering out, which my wife seems to love, so. <laughs> she considers anything in the, in the township a home-cooked meal, huh? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Tim, this was awesome, man. I know people are going to enjoy hearing uh, kind of the arc of your career and, and how it all played out and all the, the stops in between. This has been great. Thanks for doing it. It's fun to see you and talk to you and uh, have some Thanks for listening to this episode of Flyers Daily. We'll be back Wednesday with another brand new one. Chuck Fletcher will speak tomorrow, so we'll break that down in our Wednesday episode. Everybody have a great day. We'll talk to you on the next episode of Flyers Daily.